This is episode 19 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events podcast. We're continuing Men's Roundup 2004. This is session three with Bill Perkins. Man, I just want to thank you for the opportunity to have uh, been with you this weekend. There were uh, two reasons I wanted to come. One was to be I found it, it was really awesome to be here with you. God bless you. We'll see you later. <laughs> there are two reasons I wanted to come this weekend. One was to uh, be here with men that I know love Jesus Christ. Thank you for letting me be a part of that. The other one is, of course, uh, as I mentioned on... Uh, when was it? Yesterday. <laughs> when I first got here Friday is uh, sharing about the fact that the joy was also being able to um, share the platform with my best friend, uh, with one of the guys in my huddle. In fact, uh, Bill, who I talked about this morning. Uh, this is a man that I have ministered with for over 25 years. Uh, we've been through a lot together. And Bill's always been there when I've needed him. And tonight, you're going to have the opportunity to hear from a man who walks with God in a deep way. Bill's the president and founder of an organization called Million Mighty Men. He's spoken across the country to various men's groups. In fact, he's one of the most sought-after speakers that I've been around. And Bill has written and contributed over 14 books. He's been on hundreds of radio stations. He's appeared on The O'Reilly Factor. And But most of all, he's a good man who loves Christ and has a great family. He lives in uh, Westland, Oregon with his wife, Cindy, his son, Ryan, who has just had his own son, Elijah, so he's a grandpa. He, <laughs> he has another son by the name of Will and another one by the name of Ryan. We've been friends, as I mentioned, for 25 years, a, a good brother. He's been a pastor for over 20 years, and if there's one thing I know about Bill Perkins, he's the real deal. He's authentic. Men, thank you for letting me be here with you this weekend. If you want to get in touch with me, please feel free to email me at rodney.cooper at comcast.net. I'd love to hear from you. I'll get back to you. We're here as a team. We not only want to talk about Huddle, we want to model it. Would you welcome for me my best friend, Bill Perkins? I gotta hand it. I gotta hand it to you guys that are morning people. How many of you guys are night owls? How many of you guys are morning owls? I, I'm just astounded. I mean, morning birds. I'm astounded at the morning birds that their eyes are still open. Congratulations! Give them a hand. They deserve it. Hey, how was dinner tonight? Meat, meat, right? Meat. How'd you like it? Meat and potatoes. You know, we didn't have any of this souffle, light stuff. It was the real deal. I actually was, I flew into St. Louis. I arrived at about 5 p.m. at the hotel. I hadn't eaten in a while. There was a restaurant adjacent to the hotel. I went in there. Uh, the hostess set me at a table. The waitress came over, gave me a menu, glass of water. 
I looked over. She came back, and I said, excuse me, um, could you tell me, please, what's the best meat item on the menu? And she kind of lifted her nose and said, I don't know. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> Something inside me snapped in that morning. And please, if you're a vegetarian, do not be offended. I'm not talking about vegetarians. I'm talking about vegetarians who think that because they eat plants, they are somehow superior to people who eat animals. Okay, like I would eat Donald Duck. I would eat the Easter Bunny. In fact, I was eating with a group of guys tonight, and I asked him, I said, okay, if you were hungry, would you kill Donald Duck? And one of the guys says, I'd kill Donald Duck if I wasn't hungry just to keep from getting hungry. Bugs Bunny, it's done. I'm sorry. If I'm hungry, Bugs Bunny, he goes. But anyway, so she's got this air of superiority, and I looked at her and I said, you know, would you please answer a question for me? She said, what's that? And I said, how can you be a vegetarian with a clear conscience? She said, what are you talking about? And I said, do you not realize there's a whole body of evidence that indicates that all plant life exists on a conscious level? She said, are you crazy? And I go, no. There's a website, silentscream.com. You can go there and listen to a whole wheat field screaming in agony as it's being harvested. I said, I just do not understand how you can eat a piece of bread knowing how many thousands of creatures were slaughtered so you could have one bite of bread. She goes, well, how could you eat a steak? And I go, well, you know what? I'll tell you what bothers me about it. I know that Cal has sustained himself on alfalfa. <laughs> I mean, when I think of all the alfalfa creatures that had to be slaughtered so that cow could live, but you know what? When I eat that steak, only one cow died and it fed a lot of people. Whereas when you eat bread, think of all the wheat creatures that were slaughtered. <laughs> Standing next to her was this guy. I guess he was a waiter in training, right? And he's listening to all of this. And she turns to him for support. And she goes, have you ever heard such a stupid thing in all your life? He goes, no, I've been to the website. You should go there. She walks off real fast and we go, yes, one more vegetarian bites the dust. It was fun. It was fun. I've tried that on vegetarians since then. You might try it on one someday. Uh, they, it really begins to bother their conscience to think, maybe, maybe these, what would they eat then? I don't know. I guess water. <laughs> anyway, I want to kind of begin tonight uh, by reading to you the opening paragraph from this book, When Good Men Are Tempted. It's a book that's now in 14 languages. In fact, this edition is for teenagers, junior high and high schoolers. This is the first time it's ever been sold anywhere in the world. They shipped me a box of them to make available to you for your teenagers. I gotta warn you, uh, dads, this is in your face. It'll connect with your kid. You're gonna read it and go, what? In fact, this guy, Randy Southern, who rewrote it in, you know, for junior high and high schoolers, he, his name wasn't gonna be on the cover. And I said, no, no, your name's gonna be on the cover. When guys get upset about some of the stuff in here, I'm saying, well, that's the part Randy wrote. <laughs> Anyway, um, <clears throat> this chapter was birthed one Friday night while I was turning on my sprinkler system. As I walked across my yard, I noticed my neighbor's lights were on. Curious as to why they were up so late, I approached the fence and looked through the slats. 
I expected to see a handful of people playing cards inside their home. Instead, I saw a beautiful young woman talking on the phone. That wouldn't have been any big deal if she had been dressed. But she wasn't. Instantly, my eyes locked on her. Adrenaline rushed through my body. And if you want to know the rest of the story, the book is available on the back table. <laughs> when I went inside, uh, my wife said, what took so long? And I said, it was the naked girl next door. That woke her up. What naked girl? And I kind of explained to her what happened. And the next morning, I was meeting with a group of guys in the church. Uh, Rod wasn't in the group, but it was a group of guys in the church that were leaders. And I have to tell you, as surprised as I was by what happened on that Friday night, I was more surprised by what happened on Saturday morning. Because when I met with these guys, these were three guys, th these were men who were leaders in the church. These were guys that were like deacons or elders. These were men that had Bible studies in their homes. These were men that I would have been excited to have be mentors to my sons. And I confessed to them what had happened to me the night before. And there was this long silence. And then one of the guys cleared his throat and he goes, well, you know, Bill, I've never told anyone this, but from, the second, from a second floor window of our house, I can see into my next door neighbor's bedroom. I can see their bed. And he said, Bill, they have these bamboo shades, and when the shades are down, they're transparent. If the lights are on, I can see them. And he said, Bill, I've been taking a glance for a couple of years, and every time afterwards I say I'll never do it again. But I keep being drawn back to that window. You know, really like a moth towards a flame. And then one of the other guys, he says, well, Bill, he said, you know, I live in a patio home. That means homes with zeal property lines. They're very close together. And he says, from the second floor window of my house, I can see my next door neighbor. And Bill, she's single, and she cleans her home in the nude. And I've been watching her for six months. This shocked me. And what disturbed me most about it was I realized that these guys, I perceive to be more mature than me. And if they had been unsuccessful at bridling sexual lust, how was I going to be successful? So I knew if what happened to them wasn't going to happen to me, I knew what I had to do. And I'll tell you more about that later. <laughs> it's in the book. What we're looking at this weekend is mission. Our mission as men is to bring glory to God. And bringing glory to God really does mean that we demonstrate what God would be like in a man if God was living in a man. And since God is living in us, our lives are to be visible expressions of the character of God in the way that we work, in the way that we drive, in the way that we relate to other people, in the way that we relate to our families. And as we saw in the last session, we can't do this alone. We've got to do it in the context of huddle. And there are two critical areas of our life in which if we're going to be men who fulfill this mission, we've got to have a strategy and a plan. And that first area is in the area of moral sexual purity. It is absolutely essential if we be men, if we are going to be men who glorify God through our lives, that we be men who are able to fight for moral sexual purity and have a strategy that will enable that to do, us to do that. What I discovered with those men years ago in Houston, Texas, was that no matter how mature someone looks, 
no matter how spiritual they may behave, what is on the inside is not always what is on the outside. And in the context of that discussion that we had that morning, what I did after that, it really took me on a journey that's lasted for decades in terms of trying to discover how I can be a man of moral sexual purity and how I can encourage the men around me to be men of moral sexual purity. And I have to tell you that I think the greatest threat in, to men in the church today is sexual immorality. It is attacking the church like it has at no other time. And every single one of us is vulnerable. That's why it's essential that we have a strategy. And if we're going to have that strategy, the first thing that we must do is we must fight for moral sexual purity with anticipation. You see, we have to understand that when we leave this hill and we go back down into the world, into the marketplace, into the classroom, into work, into our families, that in that context, the enemy is going to attack us. And as the enemy attacks us, we are going to face exhaustion and pain. And when we face exhaustion and pain, we've got to have a strategy to enable us when we are the most exhausted and suffering the most to be able to make the right kind of moral decisions. In 2 Samuel 23, 9-12, we find the story of David's mighty men. In this passage we read, after him, after one of the other mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to do battle with them, the battle and the men of Israel withheld. He arose and he struck the Philistines. Now get this part. Read it with me. Until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to strip the slain. You see what happened here? When everybody else was running away, when others were unwilling to fight, when lactic acid was burning, was, was, was rushing through this man's arm, when he was experiencing physical exhaustion and pain, so much so that his hands literally froze to that sword, he continued to swing and until he was victorious. Every athlete who enters the field of competition that is a that is a champion anticipates exhaustion and pain and in order to prepare for exhaustion and pain they train themselves and that's what he had to have done he had to have trained himself and it's essential before going into battle spiritually that we anticipate that we're going to have pain and when we have pain we're going to want to deaden that pain in ways that can be harmful to us we can deaden the pain with alcohol we can deaden the pain with, with sex. We can bend the, deaden the pain with drugs. We can deaden the pain with work. There's all sorts of things that we can use to deaden emotional pain to make us feel better. And when we are experiencing that pain, we're going to be tempted to do just that. That's why it's so essential that we anticipate it. When I was a kid, um, my dad, he didn't really care too much whether or not um, I did well in school. But he, it was really important to him that I be a good fist fight, fist fighter. Uh, my dad was what you might call a West Texas redneck. Um, I mean, that's what he was. I actually grew up in my formative years in Roswell, New Mexico. It was there in 1947, the alien spacecraft crash. My wife said that they deposited pods, which hatched two years later, explaining my existence. 
I say they had two months later explaining Al Gore's existence. <laughs> Which would also explain why he was able to invent the internet, of course. Now, I know, I know, I know that someone will come up to me invariably and go, you know, I really don't appreciate your political humor. And my response is always a very mature, whatever. <laughs> but my dad basically, you, you know, this was, this was kind of his, his thing for me. And, um, and because I was always so large like I am now, when I, when I was little, actually, um, I used to get in a lot of fights. When I was in junior high school, my best friend, Benny Smith, um, he was the best athlete in school. In fact, he went on to be an all-state football player two years in a row, played at West Point. But by eighth grade, he'd never been in a fight. And I talked to him one day, and I said, Ben, you know, you really do need to get into a fight. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're a good athlete. Um, you're, you're quick. You'd be good at it. You need to pick a fight with someone that's going to be a good match. You know, but, but one where you can be victorious. And so sure enough, he picked a fight with this guy named Hershey. And remember back in those days when kids had fights and they went into the alley and the whole school shows up? It was like that. I mean, this was Ben's first fight. Everyone in the school, it seems, showed up. There's this massive crowd of kids in the alley. and They're in the middle and they raise their fists and they're circling around each other. And they're swinging but not making contact. And after about a minute and a half, this Benny out the corner of his mouth says to me, this is tiring. Hershey hears him. He says, you tired? Benny goes, yeah, I'm tired. Hershey goes, well, what do you want to do about it? Ben says, what do you want to do about it? Hershey says, well, we could quit. Ben says, yeah, we could quit. And then at the same time, they said, no one wins and no one loses. And they put down their fists and walked off. <laughs> and everyone's going, what's the deal here? We came to see a fight. See, Benny anticipated the fight. He just didn't anticipate the exhaustion. And if we're going to be victorious, we've got to anticipate that. But anticipation isn't enough because we've got to not, we must not only anticipate, but we must prepare. So we fight for purity with anticipation but with preparation. And that means we have to be willing to break the temptation cycle. You know, guys come to events like this and they reconnect with God. And when they reconnect with God, they dedicate themselves to be pure. But then they go back without a strategy or a plan. That's not going to happen this time. Because you're about to discover a strategy which, if you apply it, will enable you to maintain moral sexual purity. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, we read, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when... By his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, he gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James is describing a four-step temptation cycle. Whenever the enemy tempts you, he always tempts you in the same sort of a way. Now... The temptation is going to be adapted to your unique weakness, to your personality. But the cycle is always exactly the same. And if we understand this four-step cycle, then we can implement a strategy to break that cycle. And it really begins with stage one. And stage one of the temptation cycle is what James calls enticement. Psychologists call it preoccupation. But it's a fishing term. You've got a big bass and he's underneath this kind of an enclave where the, the rock comes down and it cuts back and 
and the bass is in there. But the fisherman knows where he is, and so he drops the bait right in front of him and entices that fish out of his place of safety, and he begins to circle around that bait. That's stage one. Stage one is enticement. The flesh, that part of our personality that really craves gratification apart from our relationship with God and apart from obedience to God, is, it is dormant. It's, it's resting. It's not getting much of our attention. Then all of a sudden, the enemy drops a piece of bait right in front of us. And all of a sudden, the flesh comes to the surface and we begin to think about how pleasurable it would be to just experience that bait. And what happens in the enticement stage is we see the bait, but not the hook. Like that fish, we think we can get the bait without the hook. Stage one is preoccupation or enticement. Stage two is what James calls conception. Psychologists call it ritualization. He's changed metaphors now, and he's no longer talking in fishing terms, but birth terms. And the idea is now that conception has taken place. And once conception takes place, birth will follow. Or to use a different term, a ritual. A ritual is a seemingly harmless act that precedes acting out. Let me give you an example. Um, a ritual would be to surf the internet without knowing where you're going to go. Nothing wrong with that. Unless when you surf the internet without knowing where you're going to go, you end up at a porn site. Nothing wrong with channel surfing on TV. Unless you end up watching something erotic. Nothing wrong with looking for a video in a video store unless you find yourself attracted to some more erotic labels. A ritual is a seemingly harmless act that precedes acting out. You know what I do in my church when a cell phone goes off? I answer it. I did that at a men's event once. It was awesome. But not now. Moving along. Ritualization, conception. We're going to come back to rituals. Because rituals are the seemingly harmless acts that precede, uh, uh, precede acting out. And then stance three is acting out. Once we, begin to once we begin to ritualize, once conception takes place, we act out. We carry out this deed that promised so much pleasure. And then finally, the last stage is shame and death. The last stage is shame and death. It doesn't mean physical death. It means that we feel ashamed of what we've done. Guilt means I feel bad about what I've done. Shame means I feel bad about who I am as a person. And what happens when we evolve ourselves in sexual immorality is... We feel bad about we've, what we've done, but after a while it begins to affect the way we view ourselves. And eventually we begin to see ourselves as bad, unworthy guys. And when we are ashamed, we become like Adam. We do play hide and go seek. We hide, we cover up, we isolate. We choose an illusion of intimacy for real intimacy with God and other people. And unfortunately, sin that offers so much pleasure always leads to shame, death, isolation. Now, I remember when we discovered that my wife, Cindy, was expecting our first child. How many of you are dads? How many of you have a dad? Okay, okay no aliens here. Uh, I remember when, when we found this out. Of course, you know, we took the pre-birth classes. Did you guys take the pre-birth classes? 
Oh man, those, those are great classes, you know. For those of you who haven't had them, I'm going to tell you about it. For those of you who had, I'm going to review it for you. What, what they do is they teach you these techniques so that when your wife is actually going through the birthing process, she will experience less pain. So basically what they teach you to do is sit next to your wife and you're like a pace car, right? You just, you pant like a dog. She hears you panting like a dog, and she's supposed to breathe, keeping pace with you. And then also, secondly, there's a picture on the wall, and she looks at the picture. So she's looking at the picture. She's keeping pace with you panting. And all of this, of course, is supposed to distract her from the pain she's experiencing. And it worked. I felt no pain. <laughs> I remember when we took her in for the, for the birth of the baby, you know, the contractions were coming quickly and so we rushed her to the hospital and after about 10 hours of labor, the doctor said, you know, you're not going to dilate enough, we're going to have to do cesarean section. Now I had not attended the cesarean section classes, so I was not able to attend the birth. Now, for my second and third child, I attended the cesarean section pre-birth classes. They are way more fun. Of course, the whole process of the cesarean section is more interesting because, you know, they cut them open and plant the baby. It's kind of cool. You know, they shut them up with Velcro so that when the next ones do, they can just... No, I'm kidding. They, they use titanium zippers. Uh... Anyway, you get the point. But I remember when uh, they, they wheeled her into the operating room uh, in order to do the cesarean section so our first child could be born. And I was waiting in the waiting area, and there was a speaker there and a microphone in the uh, birth room. And all of a sudden, the nurse called me over, and I heard this baby crying in the background. The doctor came over to the microphone and said, Mr. Perkins, uh, you're the father of an 8-pound, 11-and-a-half-ounce son. And it was like, Yes! And I mean, really, the birth of a first child is so unbelievable. I used to watch them on sitcoms and go, oh, come on, it can't be that big a deal. I mean, I got to confess to you. You know, I, was I liked my dog. I was afraid that I wouldn't like my son or daughter or whatever as much as my dog. But once it happens, it's like, yes, this is awesome. But how terrible would it have been if that doctor had come out into the waiting room and said, Mr. Perkins, I'm so sorry. There were complications. Your wife's fine, but we lost the child. That's the way sin is. Sin promises life, but it always delivers death. And that's why it's so absolutely essential that we learn how to break this temptation cycle. We break this cycle first by identifying every ritual and ruthlessly getting rid of it. Let me illustrate for you. Back to the story that I opened up with from the book. Um, where I was meeting with these guys and I found out that two of these guys had been looking through the window, one for two years off and on and another for six months off and on. And I'm going, well, I don't want this to happen to me. So you know what I did? I went over to my neighbor's house. I didn't even know this neighbor. They lived behind me. I knocked on the door and I figured out a story that would deal with the problem without implicating me. I knocked on the door and he answered the door and introduced myself. I said, hello, I know you don't know me, but I'm your neighbor, Rod Cooper. I introduced myself and I said, uh, one of our neighbors 
uh, told my wife a couple weeks ago that she, had, that she had seen a man looking through her window at night. And our dog has been barking at night. I said, you know, I haven't seen anyone in my backyard, but my dog has been barking some. I just wouldn't want someone to use my backyard as a platform to invade your privacy. So be sure your shades are down at night. And he said, thanks for telling me. He said, I've got two teenage daughters. He said, just last week, went on, went on to our deck through the sliding glass door. And as soon as she steps outside, she saw a man looking through the window who jumped over your fence and ran escaped through your yard. It wasn't me. <laughs> of course, I was wearing a Rod Cooper. Was it really? I didn't know that. Gosh, Rod, you never told me that before. I had a leader in the church approach me and say, I never would have done that. I go, really? He goes, yeah, I wouldn't have done that. What would you have done, I ask? Oh, I just wouldn't have looked again. Well, I did. I looked again. And the shades were down. How many of you think I looked hoping the shades would be down? How many of you think I looked hoping the shades would be up? Oh, yeah. But you see, we deal with rituals ruthlessly. You've got to identify every trigger, every ritual in your life, and you have got to ruthlessly jettison it. You've got to be ruthless, guys. Secondly, you've got to sign up for Covenant Eyes. Covenant Eyes is, an, is a company in which you download a software program that keeps a non-erasable history of every place you go on the Internet, emails it to two accountability partners. One of my accountability partners is my 22-year-old son. I don't go where I shouldn't on the Internet, guys. And I have to tell you, without accountability, I'm as safe on the Internet as a peg-leg man in a forest fire. I had a guy come to me and he says, he says, you know, he was a leader in the church and he says, you know, um, I, I don't think I could ever commit a serious sexual sin like adultery or something. I go, really? And he goes, yeah. And I go, wow. I go, man, that blows my mind. That means that you are stronger than Samson, godlier than David, and wiser than Solomon. The wisest, godliest, strongest man in the Old Testament. And I'll never forget, he pushed his glasses up on his nose and stared at me for about 20 seconds and said, whoa, I never thought of it that way before. Listen, the guy who thinks he's not vulnerable is most vulnerable. And I'd also like to say, I think churches need to get their, their computers on covenant eyes. Well, my pastor, he'd never look at something like that. Let me ask you this question. If you went in your pastor's office and he had a stack of Playboy magazines on his desk, you said, what's that? And he goes, oh, Playboy magazines, I collect them. I never look at the pictures, but I collect them. Just read the articles. How many of you, you think that he might just once in a while take a peek? Just once in a while. How about all the time? Why do you think he would peek at that, but wouldn't peek at things on the Internet that are far more erotic than anything in Playboy? And what about the teenagers that come into your church or the people that come into your church? You need to have some system of accountability because we are stewards of these resources and we have to exercise wisdom. Fortify your mind with scripture and positive images. The way we deal with preoccupation is 
by fortifying our mind with Scripture. Nothing has strengthened my spiritual life more than the memorization of Scripture and the meditation of Scripture. We're going to get back to that in a minute. But it's essential that when we're tempted, we be able to turn our minds towards something that pleases God. When I first became a Christian, someone said, Bill, you, what you need to do is learn a Bible verse. That'll help you with temptation. So I learned one. Jesus wept. <laughs> and when I was tempted, I sinned and he wept. <laughs> but I've discovered that learning chunks of Scripture and meditating on them daily is essential to being able to maintain a pure mind. And then you've got to take the next step. And the next step is the one that Rod touched on when he talked about the huddle. You've got to purify yourself with association because you can't do it alone. You've got to lock arms with other men. It's fascinating, this story that was touched on earlier. <clears throat> Rather than reading it, since we already kind of had it read to us a little bit earlier, let me give you a little background. David and his men were in a cave on a sandstone cliff. Below them was a Philistine army. Some miles away was the city of Bethlehem. David had grown up in Bethlehem. And when he thought of water at the well of Bethlehem, he imagined himself as a young boy being able to experience freedom, being able to drink the refreshment of that water. And when he said, in this, well, when he said, when he said, David longed for water and said in verse 15, right here, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. I think he whispered it. See, I don't think it was water he needed. I think that they had a storehouse of water. It was hope he needed. Because he saw the Philistine army as being indefeatable, insurmountable. He felt hopeless. And his three friends heard his cry. And they broke through the enemy lines and they brought him water. Why? Because the water told him the enemy could be beaten. And when he poured that water on the ground as a blood offering, you know what he was saying? He was saying, nobody but God is worthy of that kind of friendship. There is nothing that we can do to honor God more than to be willing to sacrifice ourself and our safety for the need of a brother. It's essential that we do that. Now, Rod talked about the need of a huddle and the characteristics of a huddle. But what do you look for in terms of men that you lock arms with? First, I want guys who want to follow God hard. I want to hang around with guys that mean business with God. And that means, of course, they've, they've got to know God. Now, I didn't grow up in a religious family. In fact, I grew up in a very non-religious family. I went to church and felt really out of place. I can remember when I was a boy, I asked one of my friends who went to church, what have I got to do to go to heaven? And they said, well, you know, just God's got a big scale, and if your good deeds outweigh well, your bad deeds, you're in. Well, I kind of like watched myself for a few days, and I came to the conclusion that I'm out. <laughs> I mean, the way I talk, the way I act, the bad deeds outweigh the good deeds. I'm in trouble here. So I went to another friend who went to a different church. I said, what do I got to do? They said, Bill, you've got to be baptized. Baptism, the water, washes away all your sins. And I'm thinking, well, man, if that's the case, I'm going to wait until I'm through sinning. I'm going to be baptized when I'm 12. <laughs> you know, as weird as it sounds, I honestly believe that by age 12, I would be through sinning. So at age 12, I was baptized. And I'll never forget coming out of that water and thinking to myself, all I have to do now is never sin again. And it's been hard. 
Well, it didn't take long to realize that that baptism didn't work. So when I was in junior high school, I asked another friend, and he goes, Bill, you, make, you worry about this too much. God grades on the curve. And I'm going, God grades on the curve. Well, I'm not a good student. Now, you've got to understand, a good grade for me back then was a C. But I knew about the curve. I took this health class shortly after I got this new spiritual insight that God grades on the curve. And um, it was a health class taught by a coach. And we had a test where we had to name all the bones of the human body, every one of them. And on this eight and a half by 11 was a picture of a, of a skeleton with lines by all the bones. And I named them all, every bone. Index finger, flip off finger, <laughs> pinky, thumb, wrist, funny bone. I mean, I named them all. And, and I went up to the coach a couple days later. And I said, coach, are you going to grade that test on the skeleton? And he goes, Perkins, I could grade that test 50 points and you'd still flunk it. Sure enough, a day later, I got back that test with a nine written on it. I made a nine. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, what if I flunk the spiritual test so bad a curve won't get me in? So I came to the conclusion that I wasn't going to make it. And I basically became a hedonist and a materialist. And then when I was in college, someone asked me this question. Bill, has everyone, anyone ever shown you from the Bible what you've got to do to go to heaven? I thought, whoa, now that's a novel idea. No. And they showed me two things. Number one, that Jesus Christ died in my place. Now, by the way, you know, I want you to really hear me now. I have a brother-in-law who had been a youth pastor and was in his second year of seminary when he finally figured this out. So listen to me, please. There may be... Guys here that have been attending church. Or maybe you've just come here and this is your first encounter with guys that are followers of Christ. What he explained to me was that when Jesus died, he paid in full for all my sins. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, to be sin for us. What that means is this. God took all the sin that was on you and put it on Jesus. And all the punishment that you and I deserve, he poured out on Jesus. Now catch this. Because Jesus was fully God and fully man, when he hung on that cross for, for six hours, from 12 until 3, for the three hours from 12 until 3, because he was both God and man, God could take all the punishment of all people who would ever live, in which they would experience eternity in hell, pack it into three hours and pour it all out on Jesus Christ. So that at the end of the crucifixion, when he said, it is finished, paid in full, what he meant was he had paid in full for the sins of every person who ever had or ever would live. That's just, man. I shared this with a little boy one time. He says, you mean Jesus took the rap for me? And I said, yeah, Jesus took the rap for you. And he took the rap for you and for me. You don't need to be punished for your sins. He already was. And the second thing I never understood was Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works that no one should boast. I said, what do I got to do? And he said, all you've got to do is trust Jesus Christ to forgive all your sins and to give you eternal life. Well, what else do I have to do? Do I have to be baptized? No. Baptism is like a wedding ring. It's a symbol that you're married. Baptism is a symbol that you've trusted Christ, that you've been identified with Christ. 
Well, what about my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds? You'll never be good enough. Just believe He died to pay for all your sins and accept it as a free gift. And man, when I was 19 year old, years old, a student at the University of Texas, I trusted Christ as my Savior, and Jesus Christ forgave me and came to live in me, and He's in the process of changing me. And I want to tell you something. There are a lot of guys here this weekend, some 1,500 guys, and my guess is, you know, most are believers. Most have trusted Christ. And if I were to ask you guys, how many of you wish you'd put it off a little while before you trusted Christ? Nobody would say, I wished I'd have put it off. But every man would say, I wished I'd done it sooner. I wished I'd done it sooner. And you know what? Maybe you're here tonight. No, you are here tonight. <laughs> Let me finish my sentence, okay? You mind? You're here tonight and it's possible that you believed that Jesus was God and the concept of his death was fuzzy to you. Maybe it was like looking through the viewfinder of a camera wasn't quite in sharp focus. And something's been said this weekend that clicked with you. I invite you in a moment when I'm done tonight and I pray, I invite you to do what I did when I was 19 and trust Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. Because you see, that's the key to being the man God wants you to be. You can't go clean up your act and then become a Christian. You become a Christian, then Christ begins to change you. And I'm telling you, it's an exciting process, too. You won't believe the changes God will bring about in your life. If you don't believe me, ask my wife about the changes she's seen in me and the ones she still hopes take place. <laughs> You've got to connect with guys with whom you have a natural affinity. Rod and I have a natural affinity. We love each other. We, when we first became friends, we just connected. There was that natural affinity. And you know what that means? That means, you know, if there's a group of guys and you really don't like being around them, you're probably really not going to want to be in a huddle with those guys because you don't like being around them. And if you invite someone to be in a group with you and you know what, they don't show up, maybe it's because they don't like you. It happens. You've got to have guys with whom you have affinity. And then thirdly, guys who will be honest. We have rules in the groups that I've been in, and that rule is always, when asked a question, I will tell the truth. But we also tell each other our rituals so we can ask specific questions. When I'm on the road and I come back, I'm going to be asked a specific question. Did you watch anything on TV you should not have? That's a specific question. See if it's a general question. How'd you do on your trip? I asked this guy that had been in my group for a while. How was your trip? Great, great trip. See, he had had problems with porn on the road. I was asking him a coded question. Coded at church. Did you see anything you shouldn't have? But I just said, how was your trip? Great. Well, I got home and I got to thinking about it. And I got thought, oh, there's something sneaky going on here. I called him on the phone. Did you watch anything on TV you shouldn't have? He goes, yeah, I did. Then when I asked you how the trip went, why'd you say it went great? Well, I closed my biggest deal in my life. It did go great. You didn't ask me was there anything I watched on TV I shouldn't have watched. I'll tell you what I've learned about guys. We were a bunch of lying, sneaking, cover-up artists. <laughs> it's the truth. You know what a huddle is? A huddle isn't a guy who's policing your life like a cop. It's a guy you've given permission to ask you the kinds of questions that you know you've got to be asked to be the man you want to be. And when you stumble, they're there to pick you up. I've asked guys in groups, where would you be without our group? And I can tell you, we all agree, we wouldn't be the same men. 
You've got to have guys who are going to be honest. You've got to have guys who admit they're as messed up as you are. That is really important. Because if you've got a guy in your group who's totally got his act together, then everyone else will pretend they've got their act together too. I always want guys in my group who are as messed up as I am. But again, we go back to number one, who have a passion to grow in Christ and are in process, but are willing to admit that they've got issues. Men who will keep a secret. There were these three pastors, and they went on a retreat. And... Um, <clears throat> Well, they were eating dinner together, and all of a sudden, one of them blurted in. I've got to tell you guys, I've been having an affair for three years. The other guys go, whoa, man, that's a big confession. They go, he goes, yeah, well, I had to get it off my chest. And so they kind of supported him and prayed for him. And a little later, one of the other second guys, he says, well, I've embezzled a half a million dollars from the church over the last 10 years. And they go, whoa, a half a million, that's a lot of money. Well, no, just 50000 a year. Oh, that's a lot of money. So they prayed for him and encouraged him. The third guy, he didn't say anything. So the next morning, the two go for a walk on the beach. And the third one, he fixes breakfast. When the two come back, they sit down for breakfast. And one of them is kind of a spokesman. He goes, listen, Joe. He said, you know, we're kind of uncomfortable. We confessed our secret sins. And well, what's yours? And he goes, mine's gossip. And I can't wait to get home. <laughs> you don't want that guy in your group. You won't make it alone. You won't. You won't make it alone. You know, I could tell you the story about the lowest point in my life when Rod was there for me. I could tell you about times when he was low and I was there. Thank God for friends. And then finally, with dedication, we've got to train for battle. You've got to develop the spiritual disciplines. Now, now I, I want you to understand something before I even talk about this. Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, says a farmer cannot put life in a seed and make it grow, but he can create an environment where the life in the seed will grow. He can plant it. He can water it. He can allow it to get sunshine so the life in that seed will germinate and grow. The spiritual disciplines do not make us godly. The grace of God makes us godly. But without the spiritual disciplines, the grace of God will not be released in our life to produce maturity and godliness. I have never known a man who grew in his relationship with Christ who did not discipline his life spiritually. That's just like someone getting in shape without exercising. It doesn't happen. So what are the key disciplines? I encourage men to spend three to five minutes a day in prayer. Some of you are going, three to five minutes? That's kind of anemic. What is that? Hey, start with something you can succeed with. Several years ago, I surveyed 400 men personally on the telephone and found out the vast majority of guys who were devoted followers of Christ didn't pray on a daily basis. So I'm simply saying, could you squeeze in three to five minutes a day? Well, every guy would say, well, yeah, I can do that. Start with something you can succeed with. And secondly, three to five minutes a day in the Bible. In three to five minutes, you can read a chapter of the Bible every single day. You can do that. When I went to River's Edge Athletic Club at age 33, I was really out of shape and approached the owner, Lance, and said, Lance, I want to get in shape. And he said, how committed are you? And I said, totally. He said, how much time will you give me? And I said, 15 minutes, three days a week. He goes, man, you are committed. 
He took me on this exercise routine that he wrote down on this stock card, you know, all the different exercises. He brought every muscle in my body to total fatigue. When I walked down to the car, I was so exhausted, I could hardly get my hand in my pocket to get the key. I mean, my hand was shaking like this. And I'll never forget when I finally got the door open and the key in the ignition, I put my foot on the accelerator and it was shaking like this. I could hardly push the thing down. The next day, the day after that, the day after that, I had muscles hurting I didn't even know existed. But I continued this hefty workout, 15 minutes, three days a week. Oh, that's over 20 years ago. Now look at me. Well, okay, it could be worse. It certainly could be better. But now what I do is I work out an hour every other day. I do cardio and I do weights. Start out with something you know you can do, guys, and then build on it. Thirdly, daily affirm your family and friends. Not a day should pass without telling your wife, your kids, your friends, I love you. I care for you. For some of you, that's easy, and for some, it's hard. And then finally, daily maintain sexual purity. I got a contest going with a guy that's been in the huddle group with me for years to see who can go the longest without looking at an image we shouldn't look at. I can't wait till he loses. <laughs> He can't wait till I do. No, we hope that neither loses. But the commitment is one day at a time to maintain moral sexual purity. I love the movie Braveheart. William Wallace, of course, played by um, Mel Gibson, went to Europe to learn the manly art of war. And when he came back to Scotland, of course, he discovered that the Brits were really oppressing the Scottish people. But he thought that passivity would prevent him from engaging the enemy of his homeland. And he was able to live a life of passivity until his wife was brutally murdered. And the day that that happened, it was an event like 911 or Pearl Harbor, because on that day, he was activated. And in being activated, he called other men to arms. And in the film clip you're about to see, he says to them, they can take our homes and they can take our lives, but they cannot take our freedom. Let me ask you this question. Don't you think it's time that you say to the enemy of your soul, you can't have my freedom you see, Paul says to the Romans, when we're a slave of sin, we're free from righteousness. And when we're a slave of righteousness, we're free from sin. Don't you think it's time to say to the enemy, I'll be bullied no more? Don't you think it's time to say to the enemy, I'll be pushed around no more? Don't you think it's time to say to the enemy, you've captured my heart and I'm pulling out your flag I'm throwing it away after breaking it. And I'm planting the flag of Christ in my soul. Don't you think it's time, men, that you made that kind of a decision and commitment? The mission is to glorify God. We do that with other guys. But we've got to be pure to be able to glorify God in our lives. I'm going to pray in just a minute after we watch this film clip. And as you watch this film clip, I want you to be thinking, 
that William Wallace isn't talking to the Scots, but that Christ is talking to you. And in a minute, we're going to pray. And I want to invite any man in this room who's never trusted Christ to do what I did at age 19. Come to Jesus Christ and trust him for forgiveness and eternal life. And I want to ask every man in this room that has been hooked on pornography or immorality or some other substance that's messing your life up to make a decision tonight that you're going to stand your ground and by the grace of Jesus Christ experience a victory. And thirdly, I want to challenge every man in this room to make a commitment. When you leave here, three to five minutes in the Word daily, three to five minutes in prayer daily, tell your family daily that you love them and maintain sexual purity. Let's watch the clip. I am William Wallace. And I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny. You've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do without freedom? Will you fight? Fight and you may die. Run and you'll live. At least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to train all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives but they'll never take our freedom! Let's pray to the other guys. With every head bowed and your eyes closed, this is your chance. This is your one chance. If you've never trusted Jesus, I invite you right now to go to him and say something like this in your words. Father, thank you that you love me. I believe Jesus was punished in my place. I believe he was raised from the dead. And right now, I'm trusting him for forgiveness and eternal life. Would you make that decision? Would you come to Jesus and put your faith in him? And if you've done that in a minute, as we're dismissing, I'm going to ask you to come up front because I've got some information for you. But I invite you right now to trust Jesus. The moment you do it, you have forgiveness and eternal life. And now for you guys who already know Christ, would you go to God now? Father, I confess to you the sin in my life and name it. 
I confess it's been a stronghold in my life, Lord. And right now, by your grace, I'm choosing to follow Jesus in this area. I'm committing today, by your grace, to spend three to five minutes in your word each day. Three to five minutes in prayer each day, Lord. By your grace, I'm committing to tell my family, those close to me, to affirm them. And I am committing, Lord, by your grace right now to maintain moral sexual purity one day at a time. Lord, I will get rid of the rituals in my life. I will ruthlessly get rid of them. I will connect with other guys. God, I can't do it alone. Father, we pray these prayers. We bring our need and our lives before your throne of grace because we know this is the chance. You've brought us here for this moment, Lord. We don't want it to slip between our fingers.